I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 118 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, April 26, 2023, a red-letter day. I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. We've got a lot to cover today, including a motion found by the Fulton County District Attorney to disqualify an attorney for 10, 10, as many as God's commandments, 10 of the fraudulent electors in Georgia. Tucker Carlson is leaving Fox News. (laughs) <laughs> after a long storied career and after a settlement is reached in the Dominion defamation case, an agreement is reached between Alvin Bragg and Jim Jordan for the testimony of Mark Pomerantz and an update on broader dissemination of the Teixeira classified material than was previously known. Yeah, and that's a big, big story, and we're going to hit that in the uh, in the D block, but we have so much to cover today, and we, we're all like, can we just go home early today? Tucker's out of Fox, and we're just all sort of... Uh, super happy about that. Um, but and the, and as the reporting, keep in mind we record this show on Monday, and I'm sure more reporting will come out about the reasons. But we'll talk about that when we talk about the Dominion and Fox settlement. Apparently, they aren't really related. It's got more to do with the Abby Grossman lawsuit. Uh, but we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. But first, we want to thank our new patrons. Patrons make this show possible. If you want to become a patron, then get this feed ad free. Uh, get uh, presale tickets to things like our VIP cocktail reception coming up in D.C. this weekend for White House Correspondence Weekend. Uh, join us for our uh, you know randomly scheduled <laughs> uh, Q and A happy hour Zoom calls. All that stuff for a little as, as little as a buck an episode. Uh, and you can tell us what your name is going to be, kind of like pub trivia. And I'm going to read the names of our new patrons this week. We have Andrea Singleton, Brendan Murphy, Brianne L., Danielle Citron, Edward Grandy, Heidi O'Connor, Janine Iorga, or Yorga, 
John Hirsch, John Butler, Karen Fitzsimmons, Karen Hobbs, Kelvin, like the temperature, Mike Walker, Nancy Madden, Nurse Ratchet, <laughs> Rhonda Burr, Tish, Wendy Mellick, and vote for the biggest D you can find. Thank you for that one. Um, so again, patreon.com, I know, patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod. That's A-I-S-L-E 45-P-O-D. And you can help make this show happen because we couldn't do it without you. All right, let's kick this show off with the 11-page motion filed by Fonnie Willis and the Fulton County District Attorney's investigation into 2020 Republican election interference. And the, the title, you know, normally when you look at the title, they're pretty short. This one's pretty long. This is... <laughs> <laughs> Motion to disqualify attorney Kimberly Burroughs Debro in her simultaneous representation of multiple parties in this matter and to prohibit her from any further participation in this matter pursuant to Georgia rules of professional conduct, which are rules 1.6, 1.7 and 1.9 and other relevant law. So this is a big deal. And it was radio silence since uh, about January 24th when Fonnie Willis said that, you know, d indictment decisions were imminent. Of course, that is the government and investigative definition of imminent, not newsworthy or SVU definition of imminent. So let's talk about this. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it clearly explains what some of the delay is. And I mean, it, what it sounds like, and we can talk about some of the details, is as they were firming up their case, I, th I believe getting ready to indict, they started talking to, in particular, some of the electors and some of the, the potential false electors looking at their statements and potentially reaching out to them. And it came to light that some of the electors, when they talked to them and presumably asked the question, well, you know, why didn't you, why didn't you ever respond to this offer of immunity or why didn't you consider it? Some of the electors apparently said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Offer of immunity? I've never heard such a thing. And it turns out that a lot of these people were all being represented by this one same person, this one attorney, who at least it appears from this filing was not telling her various clients, who she clearly has a bit of a, you know, more than a bit of a conflict, that the government, in this case, the the uh, district attorney had offered immunity in exchange for their testimony. So, you know, I know this is in the, this is in the f uh, form of a filing alleging, you know, a, a violation of rules of professional conduct and seeking to bar her from participation. But I do start to wonder whether or not you, you start to encroach on criminal obstruction. I mean, at some point, this is more than just, oh, I, I didn't heed my professional responsibility to my various clients. It starts to look like, you know, actively obstructing a case. And, you know, I don't, I am not a Georgia law expert, but this strikes me as more than just sloppy representation or, you know, having having kind of unresolvable conflicts between various clients, and it just looks dirty. But, you know, the short answer to all this is getting to the bottom of this clearly explains why the delay, you know, to the extent we were kind of wondering when is Georgia going to come to the table with any sort of charges. And it would seem to me that these are exactly the kind of things that Fonnie Willis would want to get to the bottom of. And if there are electors now finding out that, in fact, they had been offered uh, immunity or some sort of, you know, tr advantageous treatment to them that upon hearing that they may want to say, oh, well, you know what? I'll take you up on that. Let's sit down and talk. And if that's the case, then, you know, there's a whole nother round of grand jury testimony and more information coming in. 
Yeah, and there would have to be. So, I mean, let's talk about this for a little bit, because if you're going to represent more than one person, those people can't have a conflict, right? You can't have one person testifying to one thing and or against the other person uh, or have that, you know, they, they have to be singing off the same sheet of music. We talked about this a lot during the Mueller investigation when there was a lot of musical lawyering going on with, you know, like Priebus and Bannon and, and uh, I, I think a guy named William Burke was representing a, a large group of people and people had to drop out of that quote unquote joint defense agreement in order to flip or, or cooperate. Uh, and it, that seems to be what's happening in this case. Uh, now, this isn't the first time Fonnie Willis has had a problem with this lawyer. She's she's working at a, her, her, a law firm. She's a partner in a law firm. Her name is Debreau, and she's working with somebody named Pearson. And at first, Pearson and Debreau jointly wanted to represent 11 fraudulent electors, including David Schaefer, who's the head of the GOP party in Georgia. And Fannie said, no, there's a conflict of interest because David Schaefer is not similarly situated uh, as the other 10 electors because he's talked to bigger names and, ha- you know, his his hands are a little more dirty. You know, they didn't really directly say that, but they said he's differently situated. And uh, the judge agreed and said, look, you can represent you can both represent Schaefer or you can both represent the 10, but you can't represent both. So they decided uh, to split the the baby, right? That Pearson would represent Schaefer and Debro would represent these other 10 folks. Well, now it looks like these other 10 folks are having issues with within that small group. Well, it's actually a very large group. I have never heard of a lawyer representing 10 people at once, like three maybe, but 10 is is pretty pretty out there. And so now there's some, according to very recent interviews, as as recent as two weeks ago, three weeks ago, maybe, uh, with these electors, that there are some electors who are like, look, we we know that some of these other electors that you're representing uh, committed crimes that we weren't party to or violated laws that we weren't party to. You can't really, I guess you can only allege somebody has committed a crime. Uh, and that's a problem. And that's when we found out uh, they were questioned about whether or not they had received their immunity offer, which the court ordered last year. The court said, hey, uh, and and this was a temperature taking immunity offer to see if anybody would be willing to to flip and cooperate or sign a plea agreement or plead out or you know whatever, or to get some sort of immunity, limited immunity, limited use immunity, whatever kind of immunity. And it, as you said, they found out very recently, very recently, that that immunity offer was never made. And if you're a lawyer. And an offer is made to to your clients for whatever a settlement offer, an immunity offer. Uh, and you do not present that offer to your clients, that is a, like explosively huge. That is a a bad, <laughs> that is bad lawyering. You can't do that. You must present these offers to your client. Now you can say, you can advise your client on whether to take the offer or not and, you know, talk to them a little bit about it. But the interesting thing here is I, I was, my first thought was who is funding Who's paying for Pearson and DeBrow? And I went and I did a little research, and it turns out the Georgia Republican Party, which is lit, led by David Schaefer, is paying the bills. And so that is where my question came in, which is just what you brought up, Pete. Is there criminal obstruction here? Is David Schaefer paying for these lawyers to inhibit them from offering immunity deals so that they don't flip on him or other electors within that group of 10. And uh, this has to be resolved before indictments can be brought, because if there's 
you know, poor representation or bad lawyering or any criminal defendant's rights are trampled upon, they aren't offered their deals properly, then it's ripe for appeal, right? Yeah, it is. And, you know, one of the kind of core fundamental components of any sort of representation relationship, and it's the core of any bar that you go to across the United States, is the, uh, an attorney's fiduciary duty to their client. And in this case, Dubrow has, you know, 10, maybe more, but certainly 10 that we're aware of in this filing clients, many of which might have claims against the other, right? I mean, it could be the kind, you know, we're all you and me and eight other people are involved in a conspiracy. If the I might have something, if I want to make a deal, because we potentially are all members of the same conspiracy, I might have inculpatory testimony about you. You might have inculpatory testimony about me. So one attorney trying to advise any one client when all these different clients have interests against one another, you, you, you're at an ethical impossibility right there. I mean, you can't, you, you cannot effectively function ethically as an attorney when to advise different people whose interests are not aligned. And so I, I don't know how this was not, I mean, I, I guess some of it, maybe these these electors, fake electors were not really savvy about the law. But the first thing I would be concerned about if I had some sort of representation is like, wait a minute, I'm not, you know, to the extent that there's some allegation of criminal misconduct here, I'm not comfortable with one attorney representing all of us because we were all involved in, you know, potentially a, a, a large conspiracy together. And so it, this is just though a microcosm when you step back and you look at all what a significant test all of the Trump administration was to the various, you know, bar administrative processes across the land. I mean, we saw Sidney Powell's bar discipline get thrown out by a judge in Texas. We saw, on the other hand, Michigan stand up very, very strongly between, uh, you know, ultimately Gretchen Whitner, but uh, Dana Nessel, I guess the attorney general taking the lead on filing complaints. But you see in different states a different willing. And then, of course, out in Colorado, you know, essentially calling Jen Alice a liar 10 times more over. So you're seeing the bar accountability process being put to the test. Some states standing up and doing the right thing, others uh, really being tried. So I'm curious to see not only in the, you know, across the board here in Georgia, how this plays out in an administrative context with Dubrow and Schaefer and others, whether or not this plays out, you know, to your point, is there a criminal aspect to this? Is there a conspiracy or obstruction aspect to this? But it, it really throws even more of a spotlight on the legal profession and their ability internally through their checks and balances and licensing and, you know, through the bar, their ability to sanction this behavior or not. Yeah. And last year, Fonnie Willis said to Judge McBurney, hey, there's no way she can possibly represent 10 people and they're all exactly, you know, with their, and there's not being any conflict of interest. And McBurney ruled, look, we can't litigate that right now. It's a hypothetical at this point. Come back to me later if there's a legit con conflict of interest. And here we are. She's coming back. So I don't think McBurney's going to take too kindly to this because there were warnings early on. Uh, about this. Now, the judge has given DeBrow, the, the attorney, until May 5th uh, to respond, which is a little over a week from now. And we know the new grand jury will be seated uh, that first week of May in, in Fulton County. So I'm assuming that this is actually going to have to be resolved uh, before any charges are brought. But again, I am not a Georgia law expert. I don't know if you can file the charges and then 
uh, or unseal the charges, file them, unseal them, you know, prior to, uh, and then resolve this later, or if, if uh, Fonnie Willis is going to want to have all these T's crossed and I's dotted before she brings charges uh, in, in probably one of the most consequential cases in the history of the United States for, for, a, for a district attorney. Yeah, I can't I can't imagine her doing anything before she gets to the bottom of all of this. So to the extent there's any sort of litigation or any sort of, you know, follow up with these various uh, fake electors granting any of them immunity, just sort of getting them new counsel, negotiating the terms of immunity, getting them in there, getting their testimony, bringing them in front of the grand jury. As again, to your, you're absolutely right. Something this big and this consequential, you want to have every last thing nailed down. There's no rush. I mean, comparatively there, you know, there's in the context of years, there may be a rush, but in the context of weeks or months, there's not a rush. So get it all right. Get everybody who might have, upon learning this new information, some desire to talk and make a deal with the government, get their statements down, figure out what additional you know, investigation comes out of that. And then with all those facts, then sit down and figure out what you're going to charge and take that to the grand jury. So I, it's, it's, I think it is hard for me to envision a scenario where uh, Fonnie Willis does not do that where this does not easily push into the next grand jury. Uh, the, the advantage is, you know, Judge McBurney is sort of a constant through line in all this. He has the history of all of these issues. He understands what has been said and what has been ordered and done and not done. So I think that uh, bodes well for getting to the bottom of some of these shenanigans. But I do think, you know, in my mind, learning of this, it easily puts any sort of charges coming out of Georgia into the summertime. I, I just would not, as an investigator, I would want to pursue all this and get it all nailed down, lock people in with new testimony if necessary, before even considering like, all right, what charges do we think we have? Yeah. And put together any of those immunity deals uh, if they're needed and and you, you'd have to utilize and follow up on those interviews. And you know, it's it's going to be a minute. Um, I, I agree with you. And I mean, we could see a situation where they sort out the lawyer thing and get all their charges and ducks in a row and, and file and then maybe supersede if there's if they find criminal wrongdoing in in with with this lawyering. But or a separate charge altogether against the lawyers uh, that you know they have nothing to do with the actual January 6th case. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But um, very, very interesting filing uh, from the long silent uh, Fonnie Willis uh, down in Georgia. All right. We are going to talk a little bit about Fox News and Dominion and some uh, really, really great news that came down <laughs> for democracy. But we have to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. By now, we've all heard that Fox and the Dominion settled the Dominion defamation case. And Monday, Fox News just today, as we tape, fired both Tucker Carlson and his executive producer, Justin Wells. So last week, Fox settled with Dominion for $787.5 million U.S. dollars and some half-assed apology last Tuesday. But <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that I guess gets me about all this is that you know, and we, we talked about this some on the bonus episode that, uh, you know, I have mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, I get why Dominion would take this money. There is nothing certain. However much of a rock solid slam dunk case you think you have, there's always uncertainty about one member of the jury who might be a holdout, who might not be able to be convinced. And when you're talking, you know, three quarters of a billion dollars, I can understand why Dominion would want to take that. I, you know, it is a little bit, um, 
unsatisfying to not get some apologies to not get some, you know, the display of material that by all accounts, there's some additional material that had not been made public. But the flip side of that is, you know, this is just the beginning. This is the first sort of shot across the bow. There are more lawsuits coming from Smartmatic, from various individuals. So I don't think this is the beginning of litigation for Fox, not the end. So there's more coming. And, you know, the the, the fallout is has started. I mean, the when you look at Tucker Carlson, there's some question, I think, based on the reporting that's coming in, whether or not this relates to the Dominion settlement. I mean, it's clear that it was certainly unexpected. His last show on Friday, he was talking about, you know, where you know, I'll see you again on Monday. Some media accounts indicated that, you know, as early as this morning, they were planning on the uh, taping the show tonight. But it's certainly, you know, he, he he isn't going to get his sort of, you know, curtain call, his chance to thank his viewers. It was, you know, show up to work on Monday and that's it. You're gone. And so it, by some accounts coming out, again, it was not so much Dominion, but potentially the statements that had come up in the context of that discovery one, that his statements that he had made that were very derisive and derogatory towards senior leadership, I assume, including the Murdochs. And then also the, um, you know, other lawsuits that are going on. And that isn't so much the one, you know, Dominion or Smartmatic, but those, you know, it, things alleging a hostile Grossman. workplace. Right, right. Well, Abby yeah. Grossman's uh, lawsuit, you know, sort of indicating just an extraordinarily hostile work environment of just all kinds of rampant sexual harassment that was going on allegedly. So I think, you know, you put all these things together and something happened over the weekend that apparently, you know, if it did come from the top, that whatever it was is like, no, that's it. You're out. And, yeah. and LA Times is reporting that it was Rupert Murdoch's decision and he made it this morning. Um, uh, you know, and because uh, otherwise this is the kind of thing you would want to come out Friday night because their stock is tanking right now. Um, I mean, if, you, if you're watching the show Succession, we're seeing that happen in real life now. Life is imitating art now instead of the other way around. But, um, you know, it's we were all like I was live. I think I was live on the Stephanie Miller show when the news came out and I thought it was fake right up because no one's verified on Twitter. So I can't tell <laughs> who's reporting what. Uh, and I now yeah, we all have to do, take a, a, a take a beat and do a little research on who's reporting things and whether or not that's the actual person who's reporting it. Uh, and it was, and so then we were able to say it with confidence, but it, uh, yeah, according to LA Times, it's it's Rupert Murdoch's call. And some of those uh, quotes, by the way, that you were talking about, um, you know, because Washington Post is saying that it was stuff in the Dominion case that played a role, including the quote, do the executives understand how much credibility and trust we've lost with our audience? That's what Carlson wrote to a colleague, texted in a message the day after Fox called the election for Joe Biden. That was November 8th, right? And in another message, Carlson referred to management saying, those fuckers are destroying our credibility. That's that's Rupert Murdoch. And he later wrote, a combination of incompetent liberals and top leadership with too much pride to back down is what's happening. So this is actually Tucker Carlson arguing that they're, we sh you know, for like it was bad that we called the race for Joe Biden, uh, and and blaming top executives for for backing down and for you know I, I guess being too weak to to say that. But their stocks are down five percent this morning now. 
Yeah, and you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because you're absolutely right. I mean, the the thing with with bad news, and it was always true in, in you know within the government, but also out. Like, if you've got bad stuff to come, everybody tries to get it out on a Friday night, like after the, what used to be the six o'clock news. But when everybody's left for the day on Friday, you get it out there. Saturday is slow; nobody's really paying attention. It hits the the sort of media ecosphere. It kind of bubbles around Saturday, maybe some of the Sunday morning talk shows, and by the time Monday comes around, it's largely been absorbed in sort of whatever you know, the ripples have diminished. But when you have it hit like it did today, like in the middle of the markets, you get a real that from a sort of crisis management, communications management perspective, it's a really crappy way to to roll this out. So, you know, again, I think we all, you know, tend to assume rational, logical actors. I think it's, you know, of course, possible that, you know, um, Rupert Murdoch heard about this yesterday, was furious and said, no, I want him gone. And no, we'll just announce it tomorrow in a, you know, fit a pick or something. But I don't, it doesn't, from a strategic perspective, I would sooner let it out in a different way than emerge today, because you couldn't design a more sort of like bombshell <laughs> sort of way to roll it out than what occurred here. And it does make me wonder, you know, were there things that, you know, as as Grossman goes down in the path of her lawsuit and discovery continues, are there new things that were turned over? Is there something more that is coming, particularly when it comes to Carlson? And again, his producer was let go too. And so were there, you know, additional recordings, additional material that just came up that is, you know, we haven't seen or heard yet, but that is so bad that Fox decided, you know what, we can't, we can't wait until next Friday. We can't give Tucker another week on the air. We got to get rid of him today because it, you know, again, it's a huge splash. And at the end of the day, the money is the bottom line. And if you're, if you've dropped 5%, that's a horrible way to roll out the news. And, you know, we're still waiting. There was this reporting in, you know, last week that, well, you know, perhaps, you know, Maria Bartiromo that, you know, Dan Bongino had, had been dropped, but, you know, maybe people like Maria Bartiromo or Judge Janine or others were also on the chopping block as sort of the the fallout from the settlement. And we haven't heard that, but, you know, I don't, I don't think this is the end of Fox News personalities being shown the door. Yeah, no. And like you said, they couldn't wait another day. Uh, or another week. And so wh- why is that? Which, you know, leads me to believe they they know a lot more about the, this information. We don't have it all uh, than we do. And perhaps something is coming out. You know, maybe maybe Fox got a call from a, from a journalist saying, hey, I got these tapes. I'm going to release them on, you know, whatever day. And, you know, they, they had to act. I mean, I, you know, any, everything is speculation, but the fact that they couldn't just let him hang around and have maybe a last show or anything like that says that this was an urgent in nature. And, and I think we'll learn more in the coming days uh, and weeks. Yeah. Um, all right. We have some other settlement news, don't we? Yeah, we do. So on the turning to New York in Congress, Alvin Bragg and Jim Jordan reached a settlement in the lawsuit filed by Bragg to block Jim Jordan's subpoena Mark Pomerantz. And this is from uh, a statement from Bragg, quote, our successful stay of the subpoena blocked the immediate deposition and afforded us the time necessary to coordinate with the House Judiciary Committee on an agreement that protects the DA's privileges and interests. We are pleased with a resolution which ensures any questioning of our former employee will take place in the presence of our general counsel on a reasonable, agreed-upon time frame. We are gratified that the Second Circuit's ruling provided us with the opportunity to successfully resolve this dispute. Now, you know, Jim Jordan, being the, you know, kind of knucklehead that he is, immediately took to Twitter and you know, started crowing about while well, Bragg caved. But I don't, yeah, I, I don't think... But it's his agreement. <laughs> 
Right. Uh, you know, it, it's he he clearly, I think, you know, gave up a lot of what he was seeking to do in a sort of unconstrained manner. So I think this is, you know, what we had talked about before about that, you know, having a legitimate legislative purpose to issue the subpoena was so broad. I think there was some understanding that, you know, this was a delaying tactic that if taken to its sort of final state, would result in Pomerantz having to testify. So I think cutting a deal like this is advantageous in, in setting the the contours and the timing in particular of that testimony. And Yeah, and to be know, able to have the general counsel present is a huge thing too. Right. And I don't know, you know, again, when they finally get Pomerantz Jim in Jordan the room. Jim Jordan caved. You know, right. And, and we, you know, never, notwithstanding whatever, I don't know what Jim, what, what is Jim Jordan? What are, what are the House Republicans going to, what do they think they're going to extract from Pomerantz? That Trump should have been prosecuted for more? That there was crime that Trump committed that he wasn't charged with because the DA or people in New York were politically scared? I mean- Here's what I, mean, I think. Here's honestly what I think is because there's going to be general counsel there now. And, and Jim Jordan knows he can't ask about uh, open and ongoing investigations. He can't ask about grand jury procedure. He can't ask about stuff that's attorney-client privileged or law enforcement privileged or work product doctrine privileged or deliberative process privileged. or I mean, there's a million different privileges here. And Pomerantz isn't going to be able to answer most questions. And Jim Jordan's going to use that to say they're covering things up. They're hiding things from us. We demand to know because they got $7 from the federal government in 1966 or whatever his argument is. Um, and that, I mean, that's what I think the end goal is, right, is to just crow about any questions that aren't going to be answered uh, as as it being a deep state cover up and a political witch hunt and, uh, you know, all the typical language that we heard. And the, the Second Circuit mention in D.A. Bragg's statement, because um, this happened since we recorded our last show, you remember the, that Trump judge said, uh, no one's above the law. Pomerantz, you have to testify tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. And Bragg filed to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals for a stay, and the Second Circuit granted him that stay uh, so that uh, he didn't have to go in and testify. Now, I thought my <laughs> after seeing what the Republicans did to Congress, congressional subpoenas, I was like, oh, well, file an appeal and then go on bonk and then have it kicked back down and then file another appeal, like make it, you know, run out the clock. But instead, Alvin Bragg used that time that afforded him by the Second Circuit uh, because of that temporary stay to to actually coordinate with Jim Jordan and and say, here, look, these would be our demands. Are you cool with that? And of course, Jim Jordan's cool with that, because like I said, he just wants some sound bites of people refusing to answer questions so that he can, you know, because that vacuum of knowledge allows him to insert whatever weird conspiracy theory he wants to go with. Yeah. And, you know, it does a couple of things for Bragg, right? I mean, the first thing is you had this big variable hanging out there. Like if you're sitting there and you're trying to manage the office, you're trying to manage this massive prosecution and all the sort of pre, pre-trial litigation that's coming up. One thing that you have then added to your plate is this sort of the looming prospect of whether or not you want to fight congressional testimony. And so by setting this up, you take one, you know, this, this one whole bucket of concern and time sink and things you need to worry about. You take one thing off 
the table, which allows you to focus on, you know, the, the rest of these very important issues that he's got to manage between now and whenever trial happens next year. But then the other thing that, you know, this is for, at least as it's been described now for a deposition, which in most cases is not going to be open. I mean, it will certainly be transcribed. It may or may not be videotaped, but it, it's interesting. I will be interested to find out whether or not the closed that one that the deposition, which I sus strongly suspect will be closed to the public, is followed up by any sort of public testimony. I can certainly envision a scenario where there's a deposition. It doesn't particularly go well for what Jim Jordan's trying to achieve. And so rather than, I mean, it was like, you know, I went through the same like thing when, you know, going through a closed deposition first and then followed by public questioning. It gives both sides an ability to see what the other side is going to say and ask and do. And if Jim Jordan takes a look at this and says, wow, this really doesn't help us, it's much better if I kind of, you know, pick and choose like he did, you know, and we'll talk about it in a little, you know, a little bit, potentially the, you know, the, 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 the letter signed by these, you know, scores of former intelligence officers about, you know, whether or not Hunter Biden's laptop might've been influenced as, as part of a Russian disinformation operation. It, it gives you the ability to selectively leak information to paint it in the best possible light, which Jordan has shown himself willing to do time and time again. So again, if I don't know, if you had to ask me, are we ever going to see any public testimony by Pomerantz? I think there's a pretty decent chance they go into this closed deposition and the best we see are portions of a transcript from a closed session that gets released by either the Democrats or the Republicans. Yeah. And it'll be cherry picked and released by Republicans. And then the Democrats will come out and show you the entire thing. Um, and uh, speaking of videotaping depositions, Jim Jordan lost a battle with the Department of Justice over some com uh, committee testimony on that front. But we uh, we need to take a quick break. So we'll come back and tell you about that right after this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. All right. In other Jim Jordan committee news, The Washington Post is reporting this week that Jim Jordan has agreed not to videotape a transcribed interview with a mid-level, mid-level FBI employee. So the FBI employee was the first witness to appear before the committee who was not videotaped because the Justice Department said on Monday that they would cancel the appearance if Jim Jordan insisted on videotaping. And there's reasons for this, right? Um, because Jordan's team has not provided the Justice Department with an informational need for videos, first of all. But a lawyer for Jill Sanborn, who is the former assistant director of the FBI's National Security Branch, who was previously videotaped in an interview by Jim Jordan's committee, uh, her lawyer sent a letter to lawyers for the Judiciary Committee and the FBI earlier this month that raised concerns about, quote, apparent technical glitches in the video recording of Sanborn's appearance in February, unquote. She noted two sections of Sanborn's interview are missing from the recording entirely. I'm sure it was just a technical error, right? I mean, I'm sure that's exactly what happened, just technical errors. But like you said in the previous segment, this tracks with Jim Jordan's misrepresentation of that testimony that Anthony Blinken solicited a letter from former intelligence community officials about Hunter Biden's laptop in 2020. So let's talk a little bit about this and this sort of misrepresentation. Like, 
obvious misrepresentation of the facts and testimony. Uh, and uh, I'm I would almost be like if I'm Pomerantz, I'd be like videotape this shit. I want <laughs> I want this videotaped by my people. Right. Which is a lot of what we saw oddly during the January 6th committee depositions where lawyers demanded that their lawyers videotape uh, this these depositions. So because they thought that their, you know, um, the things that were shown during the January 6th committee were somehow doctored or edited or cherry picked or taken out of context. So every accusation is a confession, right? Yeah, of course it is. And I mean, look, some background to this. I mean, it's one thing when you have private individuals and what they may or may not want to do. But when you're calling in government employees, particularly mid-level, non-senior executive government employees, there is no history of Congress videotaping closed depositions. I mean, first off, there's a transcript, right? Every single deposition, every single closed hearing there is not, I shouldn't say every, but most that I've certainly participated in or familiar with that others have done. When you sit down, either in a closed setting context where it's not open to the public or where it's broadcast or open to the public, there's a reporter there and everything gets put down into a uh, transcription that you can sit down and review. And if you need to make corrections or edits, you can do that. So it's not like there's not a record of this, right? It's already likely under oath. There's already a record of what was said or not said. And to the point of like, why do you need a videotape? And in my experience, it's never videotaped. Like my my closed um, interview by the House Judiciary and o Oversight Committee was not videotaped. None of the people I worked with, their closed testimony was videotaped. This is not the norm. And it is, so one, you have this, something that's never been done where, you know, stumbling Jim Jordan walks in without his, you know, suit jacket on and wants to videotape it. That, and I'm glad the department said, fuck you. You're not going to videotape this. You don't have any need that you've been able to demonstrate why you want to tape it. And furthermore, you've got Jill, who's a, you know, she was the EAD. She was, you know, she was a fairly senior ranking FBI official who has turned around and looked at this videotape and said, you know what, this is, there are two whole segments that are missing. And what I'm very curious, you know, again, you take it at face value that, oh, you know, we messed up, but I'd be really interested to compare what was videotaped with the transcription of the whole thing and see what the delta is, right? To see what those two areas yeah, were what's that missing. were videotaped. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, exactly. it, again, and to the point, like this is not, this is just, Jim Jordan has no credibility left. This is coming on the heels where, you know, they brought in all of these, there were 51 former intelligence officers who sat down and wrote a letter talking yeah, essentially about- Yeah, let's talk about, about that because yeah. I have some questions about that. Yeah, so, so the background on this, like October of 2020, 51 former intelligence officers signed on to a public letter. Essentially, then it stated that the appearance of Hunter Biden's laptop story on the political scene had what they called, quote, all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. Now, keep in mind, 51 former intelligence officers, not current government employees, not members of the deep state, private citizens who all sat down and decided to write a letter. Now, <laughs> that's that's the truth. It isn't what you would hear coming out of Jim Jordan's mouth because he and Mike Turner said, well, you know, Anthony Blinken, who was working for the Biden camp, called Mike Morrell, who's a former CIA deputy director, and asked him to write the letter. <laughs> but as it turns out, again, a letter by 51 private individuals, right? As it turns out, that's not what happened. And Democrats on the committee, of course, turned around and produced a transcript saying, oh, look, as it turns out, when asked if Blinken directed him to write a letter or statement on this topic, the transcript reads that Morrell responded, my memory is that he did not, right? 
my memory is that he asked what I thought. And so, again, you know, Jim Jordan, to the extent he, you know, had any credibility left, he continues to just lay down this path of misrepresentation after misrepresentation. And I don't, you know, I, all it does is, 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 is point to just the, in my opinion, the, the, the absolute bad intent and ill intent to misinform and mislead the American public that's coming from what Jim Jordan did. And, and the broader question is what? Yo, that's election interference? 51 private citizens wrote a letter? That's my question. Based on their experience, they think it looks, it has the hallmarks of Russian disinformation? So the fuck what? If I see this as a, a like a in court, like a lawsuit, and somebody has to do a filing. I, the way I see the DOJ breaking this down is, first of all, here is the testimony, sworn testimony. No, it wasn't solicited. It wasn't hinted at. Nobody asked for the letter, etc. cetera. Uh, it was a call asking about what, what Morell thought. But, and we see this in court filings all the time, even if, even if a campaign official named Anthony Blinken had asked 51 private people to write a letter uh, about what they thought of the Hunter Biden laptop, that is still not election interference. It's just not. So you know how they do that in court filings? Like, first of all, here's the truth. But even if the right, lie right. were true. Assuming arguendo it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I just don't understand, because to me, you know, and I, I tried to explain, like, all right, look, if now the Secretary of State and you know, some people like helped the Biden campaign get current intelligent officials to write a letter saying that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation without it just being a spontaneous report coming out of the IC. OK, that's weird. I still don't think it's illegal. Uh, might be some Hatch Act violations there. But like, I don't quite understand how people are making the jump. I mean, I guess it's, you know, you're just it's the target audience just doesn't understand that that is not election interference. Yeah, but it's 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 nonsense, right? Because I mean, there are a group of former uh, general officers who sat down and wrote an uh, an editorial that was critical of Joe Biden and positive towards Donald Trump, and nobody said nobody was accusing them of election interference. I mean, there's some question about well, do you want senior military officers, uniform military officers, general officers writing something like this. And I would argue that's a very different, you know, there's a strong separation of the, the civilian and uniform military sort of tradition of political involvement that I think is very different from a bunch of retirement gov government executives. But what if you have a bunch of teachers writing a letter supporting one candidate or other, you have a bunch of ex-governors writing a letter of support one way or the other. You have a series of ex-intelligence officers writing a letter one way or the other. Who that That's the American political process. You that would kill endorsements. The, that's the core of the First <laughs> Amendment, right? So I don't, I, you know, to sit there and say, well, you know, they shouldn't have written it. And of course, the people doing it are the people screaming about cancel culture. There are people screaming about how, you know, the, the there's just, it, it makes no sense to me. It isn't election interference and it should be, you know, anybody who's gone through any election ever understands this is very much part and parcel of what goes on. And if anything, this is a lot, in my, in my view, far less political 
than a lot of the crap that gets shoveled onto the, uh, you know, any given election cycle. So I, it's bullshit. Yeah, I think. very, very it's, true. It's and oh, by the way, I still think that the Hunter Biden laptop was a Russian op. But that's, you know, uh, am I am I interfering with the 2024 election by saying that? Because well, the, be according careful. to Jim, Jim Jordan, is going to slap you with a subpoena <laughs> to, you know, videotape. I'm going to videotape you, Allison Gill. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I, I, my left side is my best side. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, election interference is calling the Secretary of State of Georgia and telling them to find you 11,780 votes and threatening law enforcement action against that Secretary of State if he doesn't do it. That's election interference. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, obviously, this is just a, you know, distract and reward situation, right? Like uh, the, these particular Fox News viewers, Jim Jordan stands are like, it's like training a dog, right? It's It's like, oh, look over here. Good boy. And you get a treat. So what and your treat is rage, uh, you know, because that is uh, addictive. <laughs> so that's just kind of what the way that I see it. Um, but I can't, you know, we're you and I are going to continue covering this weaponization committee, the oversight committee, the judiciary committee in the House. And we are going to continue to see cherry pick disinformation to formulate conspiracy theories about uh, deep state witch hunt operations, because we know that Trump now is conspiring with Jim Jordan and Republicans in the House so that they can act as his as a group of defense attorneys for the public. Yeah. And we'll see as I, I have every expectation that that's only going to ramp up if in whatever point in time that in particularly Jack Smith brings charges this is just going to get turned up to 11. So, you know, yeah. the good, I, I guess the good news for the general American population is that, you know, Jim Jordan is just destroying whatever little credibility he had as time goes on, just each hearing, it just lowers and lowers that to the point that I think it, it largely becomes background noise, except for those people who, you know, it's designed for, but whose minds you weren't going to change anyway. So, no, you know, yeah, that it, shit can help when you help you win a primary, but it, it can't, it, it hurts you in the general. So exactly. Yeah. All right. And, and the polls are out. I mean, we saw it in 2022, there was no red wave because everybody was sick of that shit. So, so I think that that trend will continue. So yeah, keep at it, Jim. Good job. All right. I want to talk to you, um, Pete, a little bit about, uh, Jack Teixeira because, there's some really explosive reporting about how and when and how widely this information was disseminated. It's an update, but we need to take a quick break before we do that. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, Pete, it's worse than we thought. That Discord user, Teixeira, Massachusetts Air National Guardsman, apparently disseminated classified documents eight months earlier than we thought when he when he was arrested. And that's just days after Russia invaded Ukraine. And it was to a much wider audience. Instead of a few dozen, it was to over 600 people. Uh, and it had instant access to YouTube. So can we talk about this a little bit? Because this seems to be a very different case than what we thought, or, you know, just from the information that we had a week ago. Yeah. And, you know, uh, one quick observation off the bat, it's always hard, you know, any investigation, it's kind of like you're, you're going into a foggy landscape, right? You don't know what the facts are. You don't know exactly what you're looking at. You don't know how far and how deep it goes, whether it just stops at, you know, halfway down the block, or if you go down there and all of a sudden you're looking a mile down the road and it's something very, very deep. So 
one, uncovering additional information as you go along like this is typical. But two, you know, what we're seeing and hearing in the public is that which, you know, some great investigative reporting by the New York Times in particular and some other Bellingcat and some other folks. But it also, you know, is is there some question about to what extent even we know everything that the government may know at this point. But we're talking, you know, there was there was a publicly listed YouTube channel that a large number of people had access to. And we're talking like, you know, 600 potential people rather than just 50. And it goes way back to just after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, you, you know, what the reason we know this is because the New York Times put together a series of posts that they were able to assemble to a user which they have identified with Teixeira. And it's made under, you know, a, a somebody that who was leaking the information said, A, they worked at an Air Force intelligence unit. The details that are in these videos and, and photographs that the New York Times reviewed clearly matched images that we now know came out of the Tashir home. But, you know, among the more really, really concerning things to me is beyond the fact that this goes way back much earlier than we thought, with a much greater target audience, there was some information that at one point he offered to share information privately with members of the group who were living outside of the United States. And the New York Times even quoted in there some post where he said, hey, look, DM me and I can tell you what I have to somebody living outside the United States. That was the glaring standout piece of this to me, because that takes us out of 793 territory into 794 territory. And we're going to tie, I'm hoping you can talk to us a little bit because you have massive experience in this area about what the differences there are. Yeah. So when you talk about like the the statutes for disclosures of classified information, there's there's a few, two main statutes that come in. I mean, there are several, but the two big ones are Title 18, both Section 793 and 794. 793, some people call it espionage light. I think of it more as sort of like the statute that covers mishandling and unauthorized disclosures, right? It's, you know, it's what if you take something home that you shouldn't, if you share something with your neighbor that you shouldn't. Some people actually refer to 951 as espionage light, but I yeah, call that like, that's... I call that Farah on steroids, honestly. Right. Yeah, I think <laughs> so... that's more right. I think that's, I think that's right. But so in most cases, what you don't have in 793 is any sort of element of a foreign power, right? Of an individual who is a representative of any foreign government. And that's what appears in 794, which is the primary espionage statute. If you think about people like Alder James or Robert Hansen or you know Nicholson or you know Anamanta, any number of people, they were charged and found guilty of violating 794. And what makes 794 and the elements of the crime particularly um, different in this whole host of statutes is you have an element of needing the involvement of a foreign power or belief of the involvement of a foreign power. And the way the statute is written is like you need to believe that either A, what you're doing is going to help a foreign power and that B and or B, that it's going to be used to the detriment of the United States, that somehow by disclosing it, you're going to harm the United States. And there are other things, right? It has to be information relating to the national defense and the other things you have to satisfy for the statute. But what makes 794 a particularly heavy hitting and in terms of like a hit, 793 is max of 10 years. 794 is up to life in prison or death if you if the disclosure leads to the death of a human source and there's some other nuclear satellite type carve outs for making it a capital offense. But when you look at what Tashira allegedly said, where somebody outside the United States, that presumably there's some information he understood them to be outside the United States, and he's nevertheless 
providing information to them, that raises a whole, I mean, one, it brings 794 into play, but in terms of damage to the United States, it really ups the potential harm. And again, keep in mind, 794 doesn't say it has to be a hostile foreign nation. It's any foreign power. So it could be Russia, but it could be Ukraine, right? It could be China, but it could be France. It doesn't, the, the statute is agnostic as to who the foreign power is, just merely that it is an agent of foreign power. So it's concerning to me from a national security perspective, much more than anything else I've seen in this case to date. And it also potentially brings into play statutes that uh, were not you know, implicated before and a whole bunch of questions from that, right? Like how, just what more is there that even the New York Times doesn't know about? Did the FBI know about this before the New York Times found it? How was it that all this information was out there? Yeah, let's talk about that because this is apparently from New York Times investigatory reporting. And the chain of digital evidence, it says, collected by the Times, ties posts, these posts containing the sensitive information to Teixeira. Uh, the posts were made under a username that the New York Times has previously connected to Teixeira. Uh, the person leaking the information said he worked at a U.S. Air Force intelligence unit, like Teixeira does. Details in videos and photographs he posted matched images posted by family members inside the Teixeira home. So they've, like, this is the Times really digging into this. Uh, fellow Discord members sent this user who posted these documents birthday wishes on December 21st, which is the same date Airman Teixeira's sister wished him a happy birthday on Facebook. And he posted a photograph of an antique German rifle for which the Times found an online receipt, online receipt with Teixeira's name on it. So, and apparently um, he appeared to be posting from the military base where he was stationed. In one conversation, he said he was about to enter a skiff. And at one point he offered to share information privately with members of the group living outside the U.S., like you said. And that got us into the 794 discussion. Um, in your tenure... Um, looking at these kinds of uh, crimes uh, and in the, you know doing counterintelligence, what are some of the sentences you've seen for people who violated 794? Because you know you said it's 793 is up to 10 years, but 794 is could be any number of years to life or death. Yeah, I mean certainly beyond 10 years, right? I mean I think there are things where it it the things where you see life sentences are people who have consciously entered into a winning asset relationship with a foreign power, right? I mean, Robert Hansen knew that he was working for the Russians. He agreed to work for him. He was getting paid by them. Same with Alder Chames, same with Ana Montez and, and the Cubans. I mean, these are the, the, the harshest penalties are reserved for those people who truly are spies, right? They, they agree to work with a foreign power. What I've seen is Teixeira, and again, with a huge, huge asterisk that we don't, we only know what we're seeing through the New York Times and others, is he wasn't particularly sophisticated. It sure seems like some dummy who was trying to get attention and adulation from others and decided to, because it was interesting and neat that he was going to share the classified information that he had at work. The issue is, and and I don't know, I mean, well, presumably investigators will come up with some idea of whether or not he understood just how bad it could be to be leaking this information in the context of a wartime environment in Ukraine and the impact of that and whether or not he cared. I there So, I, you know, again, I think this very before this information about the foreign power, I was envisioning something, you know, a plea deal where maybe he got two to four years. 
again, assuming we knew all the facts yeah. that existed. But now that's with what this, we both thought last I, last week, right? When when we had limited knowledge of what was happening, when we did make the caveat that this is with the current information that we have now, you know. Yeah, you know this this kicks it up, and so the question is like, what was you know? Did he in fact? He made this offer to DM me, but can the FBI sort of investigate and, you know, was there any follow-up on that? Did somebody in Ukraine or Russia or pretending to be in Ukraine, really in St. Petersburg, wherever they were, was there actually a follow-up? Was there a DM exchange where Tashera provided information or responded to a request? I mean, if you have that, in my mind, you're you're very much, I mean, that, that escalates things sentence-wise and, and gravity-wise significantly. If there's no evidence- Yeah, because at first it was just photos, right? Or- um he would just type relay the information and then there were printed out documents and photos. And, and like you said, if, if uh, one of those foreign folks in that DM that maybe DM'd him said, Hey, print those out for me. And he goes and does it, you know, then we're kicking it up even more. So you like, you know, this could, it's been kicked up. It could be kicked up even more. This might be the top end of it. We, we really don't know. Yeah. And there's been a lot of like a lot of people, interestingly on, you know, kind of across the board, sort of jumping on all this poor little 21-year-old kid, all, you know, wasn't loved enough at home and was just seeking affirmation from all these other little fellow gaming nerds online and wanted to be sort of like the omniscient alpha dog that knew everything about what was going on in Ukraine. But so, I, you know, one, there's, there's a lot of assumption going into that, that, uh, you know, in fact, that was his motivation. But two, you know, again, if there is any sort of indication that he again why did he dm why you know why not just talk about it in the channel well you dm because you want to hide it why do you hide it because you know it's wrong i mean this all goes to sort of like establishing intent and the knowledge that it could harm the united states or help a foreign nation and if there is any sort of provision of like here's the you know what do you have well here's the stuff that i have oh neat can i get item two and six you know it, god forbid there's something like that going on but if there is you know, I think everybody, you know, and particularly the media needs to take a real hard reset, um, sort of look at the perspective of Tashira. And again, if that's on the, the worst case, best case, he sits there and says, God, I really fucked up. His attorney makes a good deal, gives complete debriefs. And what he's saying lines up exactly with the forensic trail that the FBI is able to establish through YouTube and Discord and everywhere else. He sits down, he takes and passes a polygraph that, you know, it, it, the best case is he was, in fact, just a stupid kid who got wrapped up in something and wasn't thinking through, uh, through the sort of logical consequences of his actions. And he never actively tried to assist any foreign power and everybody's comfortable. You know, that's on one side. But there's a lot we don't know right now. And, you know, to the extent of like, if you think about trying to understand the span of risk from like how you know, how bad is it to what's the least it could be? This sort of DMing with a foreign group, just that far into the risk, just exponentially expands that out to the bad side of things. So more to come. I think he's got a detention hearing on Wednesday today, as you're listening to it in Worcester, which is, you know, out, out in uh, central Massachusetts. It's not in Boston where the judge that was assigned happened to sit for his initial appearance. So he's going to be schlepping out to uh, central mass for a detention hearing. And I, I'm curious. I mean, I don't, I, I it, it'll be, I, I can certainly see a scenario where he is granted bail, but if the government is going to seek to have him detained, that's where I might expect to see sort of additional detail of like why, if there is a foreign link, that the government might show a little leg in explaining why there is a foreign link is a reason to keep him detained. So stay tuned.
Yeah. And of course, as a former government supervisor uh, with tons of direct reports, my first question is, uh, give me the training logs. <laughs> Did he take the insider threat training? Did he take all of his training? Because, you know, the thing, the thing about the government, the way that it works is, just a little bit of, uh, behind the curtains here, is if I wanted to continue to have my CAC card work, which is what allows me to sign into my computer, my training has to be up to date. And you can't cheat on the training. You have to sit through it and answer the questions and it's interactive and you have to do it annually, um, sometimes semi-annually um, or biannually, twice a year. Anyway, um, there's no way around the training, right? Like you can't just sort of shirk your way out of it. And uh, that's for a reason. So as a former supervisor, I, my first thing, I'd be pulling those training logs to see if he took those uh, that training uh, and then be asking him questions about that. Uh, but we'll, yeah, we'll see how this goes. Uh, I'm sure more information will come out. We'll, we'll know if this is the top or if it gets broader. Um, but I, yeah, I think that you're, I think that's a really good point that you're making, um, that the argument to remand him pretrial uh, is going to probably tell us a little bit more about how serious this is. Yeah. And the government may not know, right? And if they don't know, they're going to err on the side of safety. I mean, the, the conditions revoking bail or not granting bail at the federal system, at least, there, there are two things to consider. One is threat to the community and two is risk of flight that somebody's going to take off. Now, risk to the community, you might think, well, is it a violent offender? If somebody, if they're released, are they going to go, you know, attack more people, assault more family members? But in this case, threat to the community could be, does he have additional classified information in his possession that the government does not yet have or know about that he could release harming the community? So that is, one leg of how that might be argued. The second leg, of course, is flight. You know, does he have a passport? Can he surrender the passport? Does he have the financial wherewithal to travel? Does he have local family versus does he have family or ties abroad? You know, what I've seen kind of argues against detention, certainly on the risk of flight. But again, if if the government if the government is comfortable, they may not oppose bail. If they either have concerns and or don't know, I can see them arguing and they're going to have to come up with some some stuff, some some information, some argument to the court why he should be detained. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our show, everybody. Um, the E. Jean Carroll trial begins this week. Uh, tomorrow for us as we record this, yesterday for you as you listen. We're going to cover it in the next episode, including the Second Circuit decision, refusing to decide whether Donald was acting in his capacity as president. Remember the DOJ Barr came in when Barr was in charge and he said the Department of Justice will be subbing for Trump. We were going to be representing uh, the Trump side because he was acting in his capacity as president when he defamed E. Jean. Uh, and then the Second Circuit said, no, and then we should send this to D.C. because it's a it's you guys are the experts at this. And this is a, a huge public interest and it has to do with the president. D.C. Circuit just came back It sat there for a long time. But D.C. Circuit just came back and said, we're not deciding this. You guys figure it out. It's up to the fact finders, which is a jury. So we're going to see if these trials are, are deconsolidated, whatever uh, separated uh, and maybe Carol one and Carol two are heard by two different juries, or if they're gonna, their jury's gonna hear this. We'll we'll know more next week, and we'll talk about that. Um, but do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here? No, it's going to be interesting. I don't. Have you heard how long they expect the trial to take? I, th I think I heard two weeks, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah, it was one to two weeks uh, is the reporting I got, um, and that's 
interesting. That's short. Of course, you know, they went back and forth quite a bit to decide whether or not Donald Trump would even be there. Yeah, we Donald still Trump don't know. And Joey Takapino was trying to get a jury instruction that would have told the jurors to not make any draw any negative inferences by Donald Trump's absence. And, and the judge said, no, you can't do that. The jury can draw whatever inferences they want, or you can bring that up at, during trial. Uh, but right now it's hypothetical. It's not ripe for that discussion. Um, but and then, the, you know, as we know, they kept trying to get the jurors names and phone numbers so that they could probably intimidate them. But it's so far, the judge is probably already really sick and tired of Joey Taco Pizza. So we'll we'll see how it, I don't think it's going to go too well for them. But uh, uh, yeah, one to two weeks, um, unlike the Proud Boys trial, which what took three months, it just wrapped up today. Yeah, wrapping up today, right? Closing arguments. Anyway, we'll be talking about that and that and probably a bunch of other Jim Jordan shenanigans next week. Thanks so much, everybody, and thanks to our patrons. You make the show happen. We'll talk to you next time. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.